Welcome to This is Probably a Really Weird Question, the podcast where a medical doctor and a doctor of history talk about sex, history, and the not at all weird questions we hear from patients, students, and colleagues about our bodies and our sexualities. I'm Dr. Ronnie Hyone. And I'm Professor Rebecca Davis. And today's question is How do I know if I'm trans? Welcome back to This is Probably a Really Weird Question uh, with your hosts. I'm Rebecca Davis. And I'm Ronnie Hyone. So, this week's question, Ronnie, is something that you hear in your office as a family physician who has a lot of LGBTQ and trans patients. Um, mm-hmm. So, tell me a little bit about when folks ask you this and sort of how, how those conversations go. Right. Well, First of all, I want to tell you that in preparation for for recording this podcast, I googled this <laughs> because this is let's be frank, like people google all sorts of stuff before they come to the doctor's office. Um and googling it was fascinating. A lot of hilarity ensued because what came up in my Google search was a lot of qu- quizzes um and like uh I can't remember what those are called, where you get like a how-to with each, like instructables, <laughs> an instructable manual about how to decide if you're trans or how to figure out if you're trans, which is just, um, you know. Was it was it like, was it like you are 43% trans? Like, was it, how did, did they give you a result at the end? You know, I didn't take the quizzes because oh. I found them to be a little bit offensive, <laughs> okay. but the I did really appreciate the um, the instructables that had the very poorly drawn graphics for each But in any event, uh, yeah, I get this question a lot. And, you know, oftentimes when people ask their not weird questions at all, it's not the question that's actually being asked is different, right? So the question that oftentimes is really at the heart of how do I know if I'm trans is people looking for validation or support or safety um, right. Because oftentimes I am the first person that people broach it with. Um, sometimes people have talked to friends or family members or loved ones, but not always. Um, and it's really, really normal for trans and non-binary people to go through a period of really questioning their gender and what it really means to to be trans or non-binary before they really come to a place where they are comfortable to talk about what they need and what their goals are and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes folks are just asking, am I trans enough to really, to get the care that I need or to invest the time and energy and vulnerability that it requires to live authentically? So I'm wondering when folks come in and ask, um, you know, Dr. Hayon, how do I know if I'm trans? And you're then super sensitized to thinking about, okay, there's a lot behind this question. What do you say? How do you start the conversation going? You know, oftentimes I ask a question in return, which maybe is a little bit annoying, but my, I don't have an answer for that, right? <laughs> like the, so oftentimes what I'll say is, oh, what an interesting question. Um, what have you been thinking about lately that brought that question up for you? And sometimes people will say, oh, I don't know. I was just watching 
this thing on this documentary on Netflix and I was wondering about it or, um, and it's somebody who's not genderqueer at all. And they're just like, how does somebody else know that they are trans <laughs> as opposed to how, how do I know if I am trans? Um, and so I'll make some space for them to, to think about out loud what's been bringing this topic up to the fore for them. Right. Um, and really normalize that for people, right? I I once saw somebody on social media <laughs> tweet something like, cisgender people don't spend a ton of time wondering if they're trans and really parsing out their gender identity. So if you're spending a bunch of time wondering if you're trans, you probably are. And, you know, I think that that may be true for a certain percentage of the population, but especially with younger folks coming up, gender diversity and gender creativity is just part of the fabric of their experience. So you hear this question then from patients of many different ages, many different places in their in their lives. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, one person that I really want to give a shout out to is Dara Hoffman Fox, who is a gender therapist and they have a very rich material amount of material online where they have videos and blog posts and things like that. But what they suggest folks do is if you're presenting yourself with this question, how do I know if I'm trans? You can think about the sex that you were assigned at birth and how comfortable you are identifying as that sex. And so if there's some discomfort there, then that's a sign that it's a time to embark on a quest to, to learn more. And they call it a quest, which I think is lovely because um, I think the word journey is just, you know, played out and tired. But if you, but it's a quest to learn more about who you are and how to live authentically. Awesome. That's terrific. So I'm wondering from a historical perspective, I'm always curious about your historical <laughs> expertise. Do we know who the first person was to ask that question? Am I, am I trans? How do I know if I'm trans? So we do not. So there's, but we know lots of other stuff, uh, which is, I think, the way that history professors most infuriate their students um, by the answers just like that. But so the word transgender is coined in the 20th century. It's really popularized in the 1990s. So someone would ask, but someone could ask any other variety of that question, right? Am mm-hmm. I? And 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 the answer is, it goes as far back as there have been people. As far as we can tell, there are there is gender diversity. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I find most exciting learning about this is how many people from hundreds of years ago had extreme confidence about their gender nonconformity, about their Ooh, gender expansive that. identity, right? So we. We can imagine a past where people were less privileged or had less ability to be open or out. And that's true of many times in the past, but it's not the case that people hid in the shadows or that people didn't find ways to be their authentic selves in many different times and places. So one of my favorite examples, so in the same year that uh, we declared independence from, from Britain, a person died and came back to life. Oh my. As the public universal friend. And the public universal friend was already a spiritual leader. Wait, and they, wait, wait, wait. The public universal friend that's is their, their name. Title? That that is their full-on name. 
right? And they had a prior name. And I'm sitting here in discomfort about naming what the prior name was because there's such a, for historians, there's this tension around there is a history to people that talks as they move through gender, Mm -hmm. but there's also a real desire to not dead name people, to not, uh, so I'm not going to do that. But they did have a, they had another name, which was a more traditional first and last name. Mm-hmm. They had always, uh, once they had, you know, enough adulthood to make choices, clothed themselves in garments associated with male dress and garments associated with female dress. Mm-hmm. And this person had, or was already sort of a spiritual leader. There were a lot of, there's sort of always a lot of religious revivals going on in early America, <laughs> sort of like a, a, a ongoing process. And the public it kind universe of seems like there's a religious revival going on in America right now. Yeah, yeah, that's a whole other <laughs> better uh, for worse. That's a whole other episode. Worse. Yeah. Um. So anyway, so the public universal friend comes back and they announce to their delighted followers who are very concerned that they had died. Right. So now they've been resurrected, and they are genderless, and their followers are are sort of delighted because they see it as further evidence of the divinity of the public universal friend, right? They they sort of claim that this was, that God is genderless. And so now their sort of uh, representation of the divine on earth is fulfilled through their genderlessness. And so other people really freak out. And it's in similar ways that we can see other people's discomfort sometimes. What do you mean? You're, you know, there, isn't there a binary? Isn't it just one or the other? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that sort of happens then too. And it's seen as very threatening to the way most Protestant religion in the United States was organized with very clearly delineated roles for men and for women within the church. So here's this genderless person really messy, gumming up the works, right? Really representing a challenge to all of that. I love so, everything about that. Yeah. So so the public universal friend was unapologetic, was completely out in the open, and had a community of people who supported and adored them, like literally sort of adored, like in a sort of worshiping way. So that's one example and one of my favorites. And I'm going to link in our show notes this amazing article by scholar Scott Larson, who writes about public universal friend uh, in a wonderful way. Can I tell you that there's something so poignant about that for me, because what I... I hear a lot from patients is that either as children or even as older older adults, they oftentimes would like pray, pray to God at night, please, when I wake up in the morning, you know, let me be a girl or let me be a boy, right? And it's just right. so poignant that this person kind of like went to sleep and woke up their authentic self. It's so beautiful. Another story that I find really helpful for thinking about, you know, who was the first person to call themselves transgender? And there was a guy out in the Western part of the United States named Alan Hart, and he had medical training. And he was, he knew that he was a man. And he gathered up research. This is right around the turn of the 20th century. And he goes to his physician and says, here's, here's all the information. Here's who I am. Here's my health history. If you want to take, you know, do a psychiatric evaluation, whatever, fine. I am a man. And here are the various procedures that I want you to perform. This is how I want you to treat me so that I can live authentically as a man. Yes. And the physician's notes on this are really 
eye-opening because the physician misgenders Alan Hart repeatedly, talks about how, you know, in his in his childhood that he was, you know, a tomboy who liked boys' games and so on. What Alan Hart has been telling this physician is, yeah, so my entire life I have known that I was a guy. So come on, let's speed it up. Just just do, like, here's the info. And the physician does it. I love it. And and then he goes on and lives his best life. So there are absolutely people who knew with complete certainty that they were a different gender than what they'd been assigned at birth, and whether genderless or uh, moving through one gender to a different gender in the course of their lives, um, absolutely. And it's really tragic, and I mean this yeah. earnestly, when people talk about trans identity as something that's just been invented in the last 20, 30 years. That's uh, that's 100% not true. Right. The language we have around it has changed dramatically and continues to change. But the reality that there are people who have 100% certainty known this about themselves, it's right there in the historical record for anybody to see. Right. And, you know, <laughs> people have been transgender far longer than we've called ourselves transgender, right? Like, yes. Being trans is part of the human condition. Trans and non-binary folks have been here forever. Um, and your story, your story about him having to educate his physician is also, but you're just like breaking my heart today, Rebecca. It's it's also incredibly poignant because this is still happening. <laughs> right. And there was a really great um study that came out in 2015, I think. It's the it's the U.S. Transgender Survey, um, and it's available online for free. And it was, to date, the largest survey of trans and non-binary people in the United States. And it looked at all kinds of health outcomes, right, including homelessness and joblessness and poverty and HIV and access to health care and access to gender-affirming care and one of the number one reasons that patients avoid healthcare is because they have to educate their clinicians about it. And it's crappy, right? And it feels right. really bad. And oftentimes when I'm teaching other clinicians about trans health, clinicians can get a little bit defensive about it and say, well, how am I supposed to know? <laughs> how am I supposed to know how to take care of a trans person? Like, I never learned that. Well, you also didn't come out of the womb knowing how to treat diabetes, right? You just, <laughs> you learn about it the same way you learn about everything else. Everybody gets all their panties all in a bundle about it because it feels stressful and new. But it's still, it's still happening. And it's exhausting. You know, I feel like there are so many things in general, right, in life that just saps our energy and our joy. And I think the amount of energy that goes into, like, girding your loins to go into the doctor's office and, like, here, I have to come in with this, like, sheaf of papers and studies, and I've researched the hell out of medication regimens because you're just not going to know what to do, so I'm going to have to tell you how to take right. care of me. And I do want to put a plug in here for the U.S. Trans Survey. They're doing 
the newest version is in 2022, which is right now. So you can go to their website. I will, we can include the link in our show notes, but you can pledge to take the survey yourself if you are trans or non-binary. You can also pledge to share it with folks in your life who might want to take the survey and you can be a part of this bleeding edge of research <laughs> for um, health inequities for trans and non-binary folks in the United States. So I have one other big question, though. Bring what it. about <laughs> when someone's questioning or pretty sure that they are trans, but there are people in their lives, whether parents or partners, who doubt it who mm-hmm. or who think that it's a phase? Um, mm-hmm. There's this whole conversation around quote-unquote, detransitioning, which is a thing that happens. So do you see that in your practice? And if you do, how how does it play out? What do you do about it? Oh, man. Like, all the time. And I will say, this is just my own, this is my own perspective as an outside observer. But I would say, in my own experience, this idea of detransitioning or the experience of detransitioning is usually from external pressure, right? So I certainly have patients who have gone through some sort of gender-affirming care and then decided to stop or, you know, go back. I'm making, our listeners can't see this, but I'm making huge, like, air quotes, <laughs> go back to to their previous gender. And sometimes it's because it's freaking hard, man. Like, it is it is hard to be strong in your identity in the face of tremendous pressure and bigotry. That be and I would say the other place I really I see it a lot is in parents of young people. Um, and I don't want to get into the landscape of what's happening right now for young trans and non-binary folks. Suffice it to say that more bills have been introduced in the last one to two years than have been introduced ever (laughs) in the history of our legislatures. Trying to make people's identities illegal and the care that they deserve illegal. Understandably, parents are frightened and they want to take care of their kids. So when a parent asks that question, I think it's really important to acknowledge that the majority of the time, and I will say not always, but most majority of the time, it's coming from a place of love. And it's coming from a place of wanting to take really good care of your kid. And so I'll say that out loud in front of the child, (laughs) right? Because a lot of times the young kid is like sitting there slouched in their chair, like eyes rolling on their phone or whatever. And I, so I want to say out loud that I, it's so important that you're here and that you're asking these questions because one of the, one of the things we really, that has been shown over and over and over again for young trans and non-binary folks is that parental support is incredibly important and it is protective from all sorts of stuff that you maybe don't expect, right? Like homelessness, which maybe is self-explanatory homelessness, but it's also protective against HIV and smoking and um, alcohol use. So parental support is one of the most important things for young trans and non-binary people. So that, that fear of what if they change their mind is really normal. And so I try to normalize that. 
and normalize it also coming from internally for folks because it can feel overwhelming. So basically, if I if it seems like this urge or this concern about detransitioning is external, we try to interrogate that a little bit together. I am also not a therapist. And so <laughs> I feel like um, I have to do a lot of mental health care in family medicine because that's just part of the gig. But in general, having a therapist who is trained specifically in gender-affirming care can be invaluable for both the person who is affirming their gender and also for the people that love them. Right. So, you know, if it's internally motivated, right, like if this is somebody's innate sense of their gender evolution, girl, I am here for it and I am here to support you. And if you want to stop medications, we'll stop medications. If you want to, if there's anything else that you want to do, I, I want to be there to be helpful. Sometimes people change their minds and shift their thinking about things all the time, right? Like the way that people self-identify in terms of their gender identity, their sexual orientation, their political leanings, like we grow and change and that's normal. Certainly there's always a risk that any decision we make could cause regret, but there's also a chance that it won't, right? There's also a chance that the decisions you make are going to cause joy and not regret. And then, you know, similar to my my public service announcement in the last episode, the other, the, the public service announcement that I want to make in this episode is about reparative therapy or conversion therapy. So, yeah. you know, for those who don't know, reparative therapy or conversion therapy is a specific type of either talk therapy or physical abuse <laughs> that is aimed at changing somebody's gender identity or sexual orientation. Um, it doesn't work. And not only does it not work, it's harmful. So if you have someone in your life who is thinking about sending a loved one to get some conversion therapy, please feel very comfortable saying very strongly, don't do that. It's gonna, it's not gonna work and it's gonna hurt this person that you love. Yeah. I, I, when I was a grad student, I sat in on an undergraduate seminar on the history of gay and lesbian psychology. Mm-hmm. And the professor w- was wonderful. You know, he sort of paused in the middle of something and looked around the room at these, aside from me, these mostly much younger faces and said, oh, and if you're ever in a physician or a therapist's office and they offer to you, if, you know, as a service that you could go do reparative therapy, Run, don't walk out of that office and never go back. Truth. (laughs) He's like, you are about to be harmed by that provider. Get out. (laughs) Excellent advice. I was like, I was so grateful to him for um, speaking so forcefully about it. And I've tried to do that with my own students, too, when I talk about this. You know, it really starts in the 70s. We can do a whole other episode about it. Um, And it's just incredibly harmful. So thank you for making that PSA. Do, 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 public service announcement. <laughs> we have so much more to talk about. Oh my God, so much more. So let's wrap things up here. Thank you to our listeners. Please continue to check our website for show notes and we'll have more announcements there of things to come. We're getting merch put together and we will look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks, Rebecca. Thanks, Ronnie. You've been listening to... This is probably a really weird question, which is created, hosted, and produced by Rebecca Davis and Ronnie Hyone. You can learn more about us, 
read our show notes, and find links to resources on our website, www.reallyweirdquestion.com. Follow us on Twitter at a really weird pod. Rebecca tweets at History Davis and Ronnie at Dr. Awkward MD. Send us your really weird, not really, questions by emailing us at reallyweirdquestion at gmail.com. Nora Carlson is our website guru and social manager. Mick Finnegan is our sound engineer. Mark Wurzelbacher composed and recorded our incredible theme music. We are grateful for the financial support of the Phil Zwickler Charitable and Memorial Foundation Trust. We additionally thank the Foundation for Delaware County. Please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts to help other people find us in their feed. Our website is also where you can find links to our fabulous merch, which helps support the show. Thank you for listening, and keep on asking those questions.